You're listening to Cancer Covered. No matter how smart or well-trained you are, difficult conversations can be, well, difficult. On a recent call shift, another doctor in a nearby hospital contacted me to discuss a case. They had an elderly patient who'd been getting weak for months, losing weight, and stopped eating. And when the pain started, she went to the ER. The CT scan showed them everything they needed to know. She had cancer, a lot of it, and she was too weak and too sick for anything other than hospice care. But the other doctor already knew that and said so. That wasn't why they called. They just didn't know how to tell her. And no amount of coaching or reassurance I gave over the phone was enough. In the end, they packed her in an ambulance and sent her 50 miles so we could tell her. And this is a good doctor, a smart doctor, well-respected. But faced with a difficult conversation, all that knowledge and training just didn't matter. That's how most people feel about difficult conversations. Helpless, afraid, looking for someone else, some expert who knows the secret and will do it for them. We'll talk about difficult conversations. We'll discuss what makes some conversations difficult in the first place and why they freak us out, but also why they're so important. And finally, we'll give tips on how you can start doing them better with less anxiety. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. And I'm Kyla King. And we're your hosts. Some of our listeners might not be aware of your connection to today's topic, difficult conversations. Probably not. So tell us, what exactly is a red level concern? So a red level concern is a patient or family member experiencing a high level of dissatisfaction around a communication misunderstanding with their provider or personality conflict. Hmm. So how did you get involved handling red level concerns? Yeah. So I remember one afternoon getting a pretty urgent call from the phone room asking if I knew where the clinic administrator was. At that time, we shared an office because they had a patient on the phone that wanted to share their concerns around a recent interaction with one of our providers where they felt like we came up short. The patient was firm and really adamant that they were going to stay on the phone until they could speak with someone, and they did not want to wait to get a call back. And there was nobody else there to speak to them. No. So at this point, they had already been on the phone on hold for longer than was ideal. And it was clear that the clinic administrator was going to be unreachable for quite some time still. So you just stepped into the breach. Yeah. I said, transfer the call to me. And once I was on the call, you know, I listened, validated their concerns, outlined some simple next steps, and the patient felt heard and we were able to get things back on track. Was it stressful for you? It was a little nervous going into it, but after that, the rest of it was kind of history. So they started sending me more and more of those types of calls. And eventually I was asked to co-create a patient experience program and became the primary person triaging the red level concerns. How long did you do that? Just over five years. Wow. So you have a lot of experience talking to people with concerns. Yeah, I would say a fair amount. Got any tips on how to handle concern-based conversations? Yeah, I do. So I think the first thing that I start with is the emotional preparation. So acknowledging your own discomfort going into the conversation. 
Because that, uh, I mean, they're always a little uncomfortable, no matter how many you've done or how long you've done it, I guess. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that to start with. I thought the more of these conversations that I had, that initially I would get over the discomfort and, you know, those uncomfortable butterflies in your stomach would go away and they didn't. So now I expect and embrace that I'm going to feel uncomfortable and that's okay. So even though I know going in, it's going to be uncomfortable, I'm also on the flip side, a little bit excited. Really? Yeah. So I get excited for what we're going to learn and that someone is brave enough to share with us and excited to learn how we can be better for all the patients that are going to come after. Okay. So after emotional preparation, what's next? Humanizing the person and remembering that they're having a worse day than you are. True. Next, remembering that emotional heat doesn't have to burn. Sometimes people lash out emotionally and it isn't pleasant or it can be a little bit scary. But what you have to remember is the person who remains calm is the one with power. So you don't have to panic when people get emotional. The person who's out of control emotionally is usually weaker and most of the time they're just frustrated or scared. So there's emotionally lashing out and reacting that, and some of that can be okay. But I mean, when does it become abuse or inappropriate? Yeah. If they're acting out of, you know, fear or frustration, that should inspire pity and empathy and not fear. But that doesn't apply when the emotional instability crosses into the line of abuse. That should never be acceptable, um, even when it's coming from a cancer patient. So how do you know when it's crossed that line? Knowing up front what your boundaries are or learning and figuring out what your personal boundaries are is a helpful thing to know. And for me, example, my personal boundaries are that I am comfortable if they want to express their dissatisfaction with any swear word, and if they need to raise their voice while venting. I'm not okay if they belittle me directly or use racial or gender-specific insults. So sometimes stating that stuff up front before the conversation even starts and before emotions maybe get you know even more elevated as you go is a great way to set parameters around what's acceptable and what's not. Mm-hmm. And it also is liberating for the patient or the family member to know, oh, I can express myself in this way. You know, if my personal boundaries are that they can use colorful language and they want to use colorful language, that sometimes can help them in the process of expressing to me their dissatisfaction. Yeah. So knowing your boundaries and I guess they would be different from person to person. You're comfortable with people swearing. I'm actually comfortable with that. You're okay with people raising their voice. I'm actually not. And and I've told people before that we're not going to raise our voices. I'm not going to have that. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's different. So I think you may not know upfront until you've had a couple difficult conversations, but once you go, you're going to probably figure out what you're comfortable with Mm -hmm. and what you're not. And you're right. Everybody is different and it's okay to have different boundaries and set those for yourself. Okay. So emotional preparation and humanizing and knowing what your boundaries are. What's next? Then it's time for them to share with me whatever it is they want to share with me. So you should listen intently. You shouldn't interrupt. You know, you shouldn't have a reaction or form any judgments. And just remembering that the person's experience and feelings, they're valid, but 
also remembering it may not be the entire story. Mm-hmm. So you can hear some pretty intense stuff during these type of conversations. And what's interesting is I initially found out that I was having reactions to the information that I was hearing. What do you mean? I was starting to pass judgments in my head and think things to myself like, how could he or she have said something like that to a patient? Or what were they thinking? And it was starting to take a toll on me for having those reactions and starting to pass judgment. And then when I stepped back, I I realized there are two sides to every story. And you're only hearing half of it. Right. And it's not my job to figure out who's right or wrong or to find absolute truth. I'm here to listen, validate, and get to a resolution. I'm not here to pass judgment. So once you set that aside, it, it makes the toll on yourself much less. No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. A cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and alone, just when you need support the most. I'm Addison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers at Green Bay Oncology, we know that meaningful connection brings strength and healing. Sharing the experience in a safe space with others on a similar path is often powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual cancer support group facilitated for you and your loved ones. Wherever you are on your cancer journey, you're always welcome. To join us, visit gboncology.com slash events. So when you say validate, do you mean, yes, that happened just the way you say, and that was bad or validate, wow, that must have really been difficult or unpleasant? Correct. The the second one, you know, you need to make sure that you don't get caught in the very thing that you mentioned of agreeing with very specifics that maybe they're sharing, but it's more with their perception, their experience and their feelings around what they perceive has happened versus yes, I agree that happened. Whatever actually happened, they experienced something that, that for them was unpleasant and very real. Right. So after that, I then wait until they finish sharing everything that they want to share or until they start to recycle over details they've already shared. If they start doing that, where they start repeating the story or starting at the beginning or repeating facts or things that they've already shared with me, I stop them then. Okay. Does that happen a lot? Um, It does. Um, Normally, they're not quite sure where to go with the conversation after that. They know they wanted to express dissatisfaction, but they're not quite sure what's next. Or they don't feel better and they want to keep at it. Yeah. Sometimes people will want to keep going over the experience that they had. Once it gets to that point, it's not helpful anymore for Mm -hmm. them. It can be helpful for them to express their concerns up front to somebody to be heard and feel validated. Mm -hmm. But if you stay living in that space over and over, it's then not helpful for them. So then I stop that and it's time for us to move on. So how long does that usually take for somebody to get it all out? Um, It usually takes anywhere from about 15 to 30 minutes sometimes. What's the longest one you've ever had? I would say probably 30 to 45 minute range. Okay. So then once that happens, I normally 
interject with a validating statement, you know, after they finish sharing everything with me so they know that they've been heard. And that can normally be something like, you sound like a kick-ass daughter who really cares about her dad. I wish all of our patients had someone like you advocating for them. Mm. And this really helps reset and springboard the conversation into the next steps and resolution. So it's like an expression of empathy and I see you, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So once that happens, we can normally reset and then talk about now, what can we do to move forward? Mm -hmm. So then it's time to ask any of your clarifying questions and seek to understand. So if there was anything during the conversation that I was like, I need to ask something more about that, or I I need to ask for clarification around that because I'm not sure I'm understanding what they're saying. I do this then. I don't do this in the moment during the conversation initially because it's about them getting to share and not interrupting them. So I normally make a mental note or I literally write down the note, make sure to follow back up on this or circle back to this if I need to ask clarifying questions about certain details. So save questions until the end. Yeah, yeah, and that's when you can seek to understand. Hmm. So then after you get those clarifying things worked out, I will present an alternative view if there is one, and that would be things like challenging the person's perception if it's necessary. How do you know when it's necessary? If statements are made that are a value judgment or blatantly unfair about the provider or the services. So statements like he doesn't have any compassion or he doesn't care about me. Well, we know that's not true. You know, you wouldn't become a cancer doctor if you didn't have compassion or care. So if there are statements that are so far out there that probably need a perception check and, you know, need to be brought back in, I will push back and challenge those then and present an alternative view of, do you think maybe he was having a bad day or do you think maybe... We might have understood what he was trying to convey. So present an alternative view. So you're saying not only is it okay to disagree with patients sometimes, sometimes it's necessary to? It is. So now it's time to figure out how we can move forward. And during this part of the conversation, it's important to give them a say and let them have some control. So I asked them, what would you need to be able to move forward? What are you expecting? And let them have some say in that. Once they've had that say, then it's time to move on to setting some realistic expectations for the next steps. And the final step is not over-promising something on behalf of someone else. It is okay to say, I wish I could make that promise to you, but I can't and won't. must be really tempting to want to do that so that either the conversation can be over or I can stop sitting in this half hour of discomfort or whatever, and then that can make them feel better and go away. And it puts the responsibility on somebody else. So Mm. it's an easy thing to want that release and pass that on to somebody, but it's not okay to do that. You should only ever promise what you know you personally can deliver on and follow through on. It just sets the next person up to fail. It does, because you may not know the circumstances that the other person is in and whether or not that's achievable or attainable, Mm -hmm. even though it may seem realistic. Mm -hmm. So that can be something as simple as if the patient says, well, I need to call back on this in 30 minutes from them. Well, I don't know what that other person's day is like, or if there's another emergency happening or another patient that maybe needs them as well. So if I were to say, yeah, I think it's reasonable for them to call you back in 30 minutes, I promise you'll get a call back from Dr. So-and-so in 30 minutes. 
And if they're unable to meet that expectation, we've just reopened the wound again and, mm. and we've created another dissatisfier and set them up to fail again. So only promise things that you know you can personally deliver on and keep it within an appropriate scope that you know, yeah, I can see these things through and I can do them. Don't ever promise on behalf of someone else. Wow, that is great stuff. Thank you. There's a lot in there I never would have realized, but then I don't take a lot of calls from concerned patients. No, but you do have a lot of experience with giving bad news to people. Do you have any tips on how to do that? I have some. One of the things that's similar to what you described is the emotional preparation. I'm always the first one to know that I have to give bad news. So I have time to prepare myself. And the first thing that I do is remind myself that all progress for patients and for their care, for their emotional well-being lies on the other end of this difficult conversation that we're about to have and that nothing moves forward until it's been had. However difficult that may be for me or however difficult that may be for them and sometimes and often unpleasant, it's worth it to go through it to get to the other side for them. Steal myself with that. I acknowledge my own discomfort about it. We talk about how all of us don't like to see another human in distress of any kind, sorrow or anger or whatever. And we don't like to be the bearer of bad news that we know is going to upset people, even if the news isn't our fault. So I have to acknowledge my own discomfort. And even after I've been in practice with Green Bay Oncology for 16 years and doing oncology as a fellow for five years before that, and even after 21 years in, in the cancer business, I still have it every time. Always remember I'm talking to a person who's having a much worse day than me. And however uncomfortable this might be for me, it's way worse for them. And remembering that, remembering that my emotions are not the important ones here. And as you actually said, remember that emotional heat, any emotional heat that might be generated during the conversation isn't ultimately about me. So there's no reason for me to personally feel burned. It's about whatever it is I have to tell them and remembering that. All the literature and the, the books and some really good articles uh, that have been written in uh, the medical literature and for medical audience about giving bad news or challenging news, however you want to describe it, it says the first thing you have to do is you have to ask for permission. You have to let people know that there's news, that it may be challenging, and is it okay if we talk about it? And I usually do something very, very simple. I have your test results here. Would you like to talk about them? What do you do if they say no? I don't know that I've ever gotten a no to that answer because most of the time, the setting in which I see people, it's either in the hospital or in the clinic. And in the clinic, they've often had an appointment specifically to do those things. I've had people book the clinic appointment and not show up because they just weren't ready or didn't want to. To, to talk about it. Um, but I don't think I've ever had that situation. I, I have had people in the hospital setting where if I had a scan result or something or a biopsy result that we needed to talk about that might have said, not right now, I'm not feeling the best right now. I didn't have a good night's sleep or I'm in pain and can we wait until another time? But I don't think I've ever had anybody flatly refuse. After a patient gives me permission to talk about results, if the news is difficult, the biopsy shows that your cancer is back or the CT scan shows that the, the tumors are growing on treatment and that it's not working. We need to move on to the next thing. I follow the advice that Anthony Back gave in his book, Mastering Communication with Seriously Ill Patients. 
I want to say the news is serious. And he's very specific about saying serious, not bad, not good. You don't apply value judgment to it. The other thing that I will sometimes say is the results are not what I had hoped. And that helps them prepare to hear the information because sometimes people will be getting test results that will surprise them. They may feel perfectly fine, but yet the the tumors may be growing. It's not always evident to patients. I mean, so much of cancer happens without announcing itself, even before diagnosis. That can also be true of, of cancer progression. They don't always know. They may have a sense of how things are going that isn't actually the case. So you can't assume that they're already going to know, although many of them do, prefacing it with the results are serious, and then you can get into it. The next step, and this is the part that I think most people shy away from and took me quite a while to really appreciate how important it is. You have to say the worst clearly. So once you've prepared them with this may be difficult here or however you do it, you have to say the news clearly and succinctly because you just don't have a lot of time with no qualifications whatsoever, just the facts. For instance, if I'm meeting somebody and they came in for a cough and then I get a CT scan and let's say I'm the first person to tell them that there's a a cancer there. There's a CT shows a very large lung tumor and other smaller tumors in your liver. I believe you have incurable lung cancer. That's it. And then you shut up until they say something or at least a full minute. And then you'll ask how they're doing if they haven't said anything in that period of time. This is really critical. You're doing two things. The first thing you're doing is waiting for the ringing in their ears to stop mm-hmm. when, they've, when they've heard news like that. It, if you've seen, if any of you watch the show Breaking Bad, when in the first season of Breaking Bad, when Walt gets the news of the cancer, they did this thing where they cut to his point of view, where he's sitting behind there talking to the oncologist, and all they showed was the picture was a little bit blurry and all he could hear was ringing in his ears. And I've heard patients say that that's very, very much what it's like. So um, you're waiting for that blow to settle down to the point where they can talk again. The other thing you're doing is you're offering them the lead back. And that's that's really important to do. You're on their time now. You need to show respect for that. And it doesn't take as long as the clock says it does. It just feels like a really, really long time because you're sitting there in that distress with the patients and it's not comfortable. And healthcare providers, we're sitting there looking at somebody in distress and we're not doing anything about it. The real temptation is to over-talk or explain or do something that, that I call the take backseat, which is where you give the bad news that they need to process. And then you, you see that they're in distress and you immediately start popping off things like, oh, but we've got all these great treatments and we've got all this and we've got all that. And although those things may be true, the first thing they need to register is the reality of the situation and that it's difficult and that it's incurable before you start jumping into, but we're going to try to make this better than it would be without. If you jump immediately to, yeah, but we've got treatments, it's almost like, yeah, but I don't want you to worry about it because you don't have to worry about it. That's not really the message. That can't be the message. And that's sometimes I think why people get confused, but it's so hard to sit there and look at a person in distress and not not want to take it back. <laughs> Terrible temptation. So you offer them the lead back. You're on their time now. If they haven't asked questions yet, or if they've made some emotional statement like, wow, or I can't believe this or something of that sort, are you sure? Often they'll, they'll ask that. You definitely want to check in with them emotionally, access and acknowledge their emotions if they haven't already started asking questions. Something like, I'm sure this must be difficult to hear. What are you feeling? 
I think it's a mistake to jump in with, I'm sure you must be feeling X or I'm sure you must be feeling Y. Or I know how you're feeling. Or I know how you're feeling because you don't. Even if you've had cancer, even if you've sat in that chair and heard news like that, you still don't know what they're feeling. I had a patient one time who I asked what they were feeling. And they said, relief, because... I was afraid I was never going to die and I've lived long enough. I mean, just I was absolutely flummoxed and I would not have guessed it. So you, you really can never know what somebody's feeling. I think it's okay to say a lot of people in your circumstances might be feeling X. Is that what you're feeling or something of that sort? But you never want to name their emotion for them. If they're manifesting an emotion, I think it's okay to guess. You seem very distraught. You seem very sad. What are you feeling? Uh, it's really presumptuous to name people's emotions for them. So you reconnect a bit emotionally, ask about their state, ask if they have questions. Sometimes just giving that news is is all that, that you can really accomplish because it can be so overwhelming sometimes. But most of the time, people will have questions. Um, if they haven't asked questions, invite them to, to do so. You probably have many questions. We can talk about anything you like. What would you like to know? And then answer any question they ask you truthfully absolutely truthfully don't offer information that they haven't asked for especially prognostic information if you spend an hour with a patient that you've just told has incurable lung cancer and they don't ask you how long they might expect to live it's not because it hasn't occurred to them it's because they aren't ready to talk about it yet they heard the incurable part you always need permission to discuss life expectancy when i was just getting into this business because I so strongly recognize how important preparation for end of life care and truth telling is in medicine and for collaboration. I used to try to force this information on people and I had to learn the hard way. First of all, it does not help. It doesn't work and it's, it's disrespectful. Most people do want to talk about it at some point, but you're on their time. When people get done asking questions and they lapse into silence, you pause and then you say, anything else? And then you repeat that at least once more. At the end, it's important to get them to summarize what they understood about the conversation. So we talked about a lot of things. What did you gather from our conversation? If you were going to summarize it, if you're going to tell your significant other or your daughter, what are you going to tell them when you leave? That often is is a very helpful thing and they can Uh, give you the gist of what they absorbed. And you will sometimes be shocked at what they haven't heard or what they've grafted on for themselves. And then sometimes you have to regroup and restate and redirect sometimes. But that's a really important step. The uh, read back is another important step that uh, Anthony Back recommends in his book. That's how I do it. And it's never easy, but it is so important. Everything starts from there. Every good thing that ever happens in cancer treatment starts with a conversation like that. And that's honestly how I get through them because it's really important to do that respectfully, to do it clearly. And if there are expectations that need to be set about what's probably achievable, that they have to be set at the beginning. Otherwise, you, you can never unsay some things or correct some misperceptions if they yell too much at the beginning. And so I do it. But I do strongly recommend for people in healthcare who may have to be involved in conversations or people who are just interested in them, uh, Mastering Communication with Seriously Ill Patients by Anthony Back. And, and I think for people who may be having other types of difficult conversations or 
Crucial Conversations, the way uh, other people might describe them, not related to healthcare. Uh, the book Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When the Stakes Are High by Patterson and his co-authors, highly recommended. It really helped me a lot. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.